Last Sunday, you heard that Debbie and I were in New York, and um, uh, let's look at the traffic in New York. Don't you guys? I know you want to be. Oh, look at that! Isn't that beautiful? What else do you notice there? There's no snow on the ground. You notice that? So, so we we left early Saturday morning, driving to the airport. My little thermometer on my dashboard. I thought something was wrong with it. You know, it, was, it started out at minus 18, and then it was minus 22, minus 26. And when it hit minus 28, I thought, man, this isn't normal. This isn't right. So we land in New York. It's 33 degrees. Sunday, it was 49. And um, so anyway, that's, that's the deal. But I noticed coming from LaGuardia Airport going to um, Bowen Renata's place, um, there was an Uber, you know, we took Uber. Anybody knows, know what Uber is? Yeah. Or Lyft, you know? You, you get out of southwestern Wisconsin, you can use that stuff to travel. And uh, here's an Uber dude. But I noticed on the highway, because we weren't making, a, this was a Saturday, not a lot of progress being made, you know. So you get to see the faces of the drivers next to you. Well, anyway, on the expressway hanging from the mirror, I noticed on several occasions there were flags. Flags of what? They were flags of the nations these people came from. And they're hanging on the mirror to remind them where they came from. Can I tell you as a follower, this is what I thought when I was in the Uber. Can I tell you what I thought? Okay, I'll tell you then. I thought as a follower of Jesus Christ, we don't need a flag hanging from our mirror where we came from. We need a flag to remind us where we're going. And heaven is my home. This, this place right here right now is not my home. I'm just passing through temporarily. But my home, man, is heaven. Will there be snow in heaven? We'll have a little debate about that today. Right? Shall we have a little dialogue about that? Well, um, so, so getting to these Uber dudes, uh, we had, I'm confused because we had, we had three different Uber guys. Uh, one was from China, so his GPS was speaking to us in Chinese, you know, directions, we had a Russian dude, and it was speaking to us in Russian. And we had an Indian dude, you know, that was speaking India, Indian. And it's New York. That's how New York is, man. You know, it's like the United Nations, and that's why they have the United Nations there, because it is. So, so it's, just, it's just kind of interesting. I brought back a, um, a whole pill program. I stole it. So I could show you that we were there, in case you were wondering. So Bo gave, gave me a note to, to share with you, Life Church, that um, he says, I'm excited for, for Debbie and I to get to meet everyone in the congregation at Hope Hill. They mean a lot to Renata and me, and the truth is that this group is made up of many people who may not have come to faith if Life Church had not helped spoon feed the baby congregation with financial support in these early days. So thank you, Life Church, who and everyone who have helped over the years. So just a, a note of gratitude. Um, and my wife needed a reminder of what I look like, so she took this picture. Uh, that's me. I, I was thinking I look a little pale there, don't I? It's like, I need to get some sun, man. Right? Um, but anyway, whole pill, they, they meet in a theater, and these are, you know, these seats are, are theater type, so they go all the way back, if you can use your imagination. All right? We're just go in reverse up the hill, basically. That's what they call the whole pill. Um, but way back here, you with me? Way back here, we're going in reverse. On the back row, was a couple named Jacob, and I forgot his wife's name, um, Kelly. Jacob and Kelly. 
Anyway, they were in our home four years ago. Four years ago, Bo brought a group of Jewish people to our home to celebrate Christmas. They, they had never been in a, in a home where Christmas was celebrated because they were raised as Jews. And so um, we, would, we sang Christmas carols. They didn't recognize any of them, you know. So that was four years ago. So Sunday morning, uh, Jacob and Kelly, they had lived in New York, but they moved to Florida. Well, anyway, they flew back to New York Sunday morning, and they were in church. And they were in the back row, way back here. So after, afterwards, they came down, and they were talking to us. And I can tell you something, man. It is so cool to see what God is doing in their lives. From four years ago, when they were at our home, how resistant they were to Christ, the Messiah. And today, um, you just see that God is working, you know, how he's bumping them along. And, and that's the case. So, so that was Sunday, Tuesday of last week. Uh, Bo, uh, Dr. Michael Brown, who is a, a theologian, uh, Christian author, he was on this panel. And Jacob, this Jewish dude, uh, was on the panel because he was raised Hasidic. Um, very traditional Jewish religion, you know, strong. What's going on in the Jewish community today is that when, when the young men are hitting 18, they're walking away from the Hasidic faith. They're just, they're leaving it behind. And it's a concern to the Jewish community all around the world. The reason being is when you read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus seemed to have the most conflict with the Jewish Pharisees. Right? They were religious, and they followed all of these rules, but first of all, they didn't seem to be happy, you know, because the rules just weighed them down. Plus, they were a bunch of hypocrites. They would tell people how to live, but they themselves weren't living it that way. And so Jesus, you'll see it over and over again, he just kind of gets in their face and blows them up, you know, like, come on, guys. It's a relationship. Well, anyway, um, that's what's going on in Jewish culture today. These young people see the Jewish faith as a bunch of rules, and, and it's not a relationship, and so they're walking away. So they had Jacob on that panel to discuss what is going on in, that, in the younger generation uh, walking away from the Hasidic faith. So they were on that panel. But anyway, um, God is doing some cool things. The great, we had a great time. Um, people have to get to where they go, either by Uber or by subway. And, uh, and so Hope Hill is like in the middle of Manhattan at a central subway uh, location. And so um, um, Sunday morning, just to give you a little, little background, um, uh, Bo and Renata are bringing all this stuff because they're in a theater uh, they were hauling it to the church, so they have this big rack where they, you just load it up and, with wheels and, and you push it. So Bo says to me, stay in the foyer with the rack of stuff. We're going to go out and wait for the Uber driver. And so he says, when we start getting in, bring the rack out. And he said, the reason is so many times we bring the rack out and the Uber drivers will see all the stuff and they'll just keep driving. They just, see you later, Charlie. You know, I'm not going to mess around with all that stuff. And so I got, to, I got the great privilege of hiding in the foyer with the stuff. And they were climbing in, and I got to wheel it out at the last minute. It was a blast, man. It was a blast. So, so how would you like to live? How you, you know, live like that, man? They just take off on you if they don't like all your stuff. Well, that's the way it is in New York. So, um, so that's, that's, that's life. Um, snow. <laughs> snow white, is that what you said? Isn't that a good reminder of what we've come through? Huh? The wind chill, snow. Good or bad? Should we take a vote? Huh? Good or bad? I, I was thinking last week, 
in, because of weather like this, I had the opportunity to help my neighbors. You know? I got a snowblower, and, I, and my neighbor across the street, he's got heart problems. And so um, I went over and I, with the snowblower, and blew him out. And, um, and then a couple days later, I had to jumpstart a neighbor. You know, the battery was dead. So I thought, isn't it interesting? I would have never had that opportunity to serve if we didn't have a blizzard and wind chill factors, huh? We may initially look at things that come our way as negative, you know, it's a pain, but God will use us to point people to him. We have to keep our eyes open for those opportunities. Plus, not only we had opportunities, but uh, there's an article, cold weather could reduce ash borers spread. So I know you're already excited about that. Uh, in the Wisconsin State Journal, the bitterly cold weather on the way, uh, which it already came and went, um, there's at least one upside. It's even more dangerous to a certain invasive insect than to humans. The emerald ash borer has spread to the majority of Wisconsin counties and become epidemic in Dane County. Its larvae kill ash trees by burrowing into and feeding on the tree's trunks, cutting off pathways for water and other nutrients the trees need. The emerald ash borer. I thought, in life, we have emerald ash borers that want to bore into our lives to prevent spiritual nutrients to get into our core, to keep us vibrant and healthy, right? And, when, and life has a way of burrowing into our spiritual fabric to cut off the vitality that the Spirit of God wants to give to us. We have to be aware of that and alert to that, don't we? We do. And we should not allow that to happen. And so, um, um, while the larvae can survive temperatures well below zero, they start to die once temperatures <laughs> inside the trees start to reach about minus 20 Fahrenheit. So, a lot of emerald ash borers will be killed by the frigid weather. So aren't you happy this morning about that good news, right? Some of you today need to get rid of those emerald ash borers in your, in your life, those things that are tripping you up spiritually. It's time. It's time. So, um, the explorer, sir, hey, before I do that, how about it, the dudes that were at No Regrets yesterday? Huh? Wasn't that cool? Let's give it up for No Regrets yesterday, yeah. We had a blast, man. We had a blast. And I have to tell you, it was so cool hanging out with the guys. You know? It was, we, it was so cool hanging out with the guys. Uh, driving to and driving back and hanging out throughout the, the conference, it was, it was very, very cool. And I appreciate the men at Life Church, man. I do. I, I appreciate them. And... Um, it's just refreshing hanging out with them, you know. It really is. We encourage each other, and and so um, so there we have it. Explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton in August eighth, nineteen fourteen. Twenty nine men set sail in a three masted wooden ship from Plymouth, England, to the Antarctica, to become the first adventurers to. Um, to cross the Antarctic uh, continent from sea to sea. So from sea to sea. Whew, that was their goal. And they built, uh, they built this team, and I also built a ship called Endurance. And how many of you know, man, you would need some endurance to get up to the Antarctica. But as, as citizens of Wisconsin, man, we were colder than the Antarctica last week. So, man, just, just kind of 
pat yourself on the shoulder like endurance, man. We made it, right? We're good. So in January 1915, the ship, while it was uh, making its way through the Antarctic, it became entrapped in an ice pack. Um, and that ice pack, I want you to use your imagination because this is exactly what happened. The ice pack, that thing moves. And it slowly crushed the ship endurance with the movement, you know, of all those ice packs, man. It's just kind of, it's kind of beating on that ship and, and it just destroyed it to the point where, where it sank, leaving the men. I want you to imagine this. That's your only way home, guys. <laughs> and it sinks with a bunch of ice packs. I mean, would you panic or would you say, hey, man, this is awesome. I never did this before, standing on an ice floe, you know. Here we are. We're, we're, we're standing on a free-floating slice of the ice right here. So Shackleton, you know, realized he needed to keep the morale of his guys up because if they realized the seriousness that they were in, I mean, it would be easy to tank uh, emotionally. So what did he do? They played ice, hockey, ice soccer during the day. Um, I, I would say broom hockey is a lot better. Anybody play broom hockey before? Man, I love broom hockey. That's my almost my favorite sport, broom hockey. I should have sent him an email to try that instead of ice soccer. But they sang songs around the, a campfire. They held regular sled dog competitions. So he kept the guys moving. But uh, on April 1916, so from January 1915, to April 1916, it's a long time, they're on this ice floe, surviving. And then the ice floe starts to, to break up because spring is on the way and it's forcing the men to get to uh, nearby Elephant Island. And so they're moving all their stuff, you know, Knowing that a rescue was, was uh, going to be tough in, in happening on such a desolate island, Shackleton and five others uh, left across 800 miles of the open Antarctic Sea. 800 miles in a 23-foot lifeboat with more of a hope than a promise that they would return with rescuers. So on August 30th, of 1916 after a tough 105-day trip and three earlier attempts to get to where his men were, Shackleton returned and rescued his men, uh, making him their hero, of course. When he came to them, they only had four days' worth of rations left. Imagine that, you know? And um, Shackleton and the five guys came in on a Chilean icebreaker um, and Shackleton, as he's talking to his men that he came to rescue, he found out, this is what he says, um, man, they were, they were prepared to break camp so quickly. So two weeks after I had left, he says, Frank Wilde was the second guy in command that he left in charge of the men at Elephant Island. So every day, Wilde would roll up a sleeping bag with, and then say, get your things ready, boys, the boss may come today. Pretty cool. And sure enough, one day the mist opened and revealed the ship for which they had been waiting and longing for and hoping for over four months. So this morning, when we look at Ernest Shackleton, I want you to think about something. What motivated him to put his life on the line to go through a 23-foot lifeboat over 800 miles? It's because he valued the lives of his men. In fact, not one man died on this expedition. Everyone was rescued. It's because he loved these guys, you know, and he wanted them to survive, even though they faced all kinds of obstacles. And, man, you would say there's no way they're going to survive this thing. But they did. There was something on the inside of Shackleton that, that pushed him um, to put his life at risk to save the lives of his men. And this morning there is a Bible story in the Old Testament that relates well to Ernest Shackleton. So on page 170, in those Bibles that are available, 
You want to go to 1 Samuel chapter 14 on the back of your program. There's an outline and there's uh, uh, most of the verses are, are, are there as well. So let's, let's go to um, 1 Samuel chapter 14. starting at verse 1. One day Jonathan said to his armor bearer, and just a footnote, armor bearer would be similar to a bodyguard in our culture today. So come on, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. But Jonathan did not tell his father what he was doing. Some of you are thinking, why not? We'll, we'll answer that question in just a moment. Meanwhile, Saul and his 600 men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah around the pomegranate tree at Migron. Among Saul's men was Ahijah, the priest who was wearing the ephod, the priestly vests. Ahijah was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub. Aren't you glad you weren't named your dad's? Hey, you're going to be Ahitub, man. Can you imagine going to kindergarten? What's your name? A high tub? Oh man, I wish I was, I wish my dad called me a high tub. How would you like Ichabod? That's another good name. Put that on your list when you're ready to have kids out there, man. Son of Phineas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord who served at Shiloh, no one realized that Jonathan had left the Israelite camp. It's interesting in verse um, 1, Jonathan didn't tell his father that he left. And then um, in the tail end of verse 3, no one realized that Jonathan had left the Israelite camp. And when you look at the the family tree here, this is what we're we're actually uh, learning about a a family, this high priest. We're, We're going through the family tree. We're going back into history when they're talking about He's the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, the son of Phinehas. Son of Phinehas, as it says, is the son of Eli. Eli was the priest. And he did a terrible job raising his sons because they served in the tabernacle. And when you read what they did and how corrupt these two young men were, uh, Eli seemed very passive as as a father in training his boys to follow him in the priesthood. So what this picture you're seeing here is, um, it's a sad story with this priest and, his, and his, the, 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 the bloodline that he came from because these were not great men to follow. And I find it interesting that they put that right in the middle of, of this text. To reach the Philistine outpost, verse 4, Jonathan had to go down between two rocky cliffs that were called Bozes and Sina. The cliffs on the north was in front of Michmash, and the one on the south was in front of Geba. Verse 6, let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. Can we just... Stop there for a moment. For nothing can hinder the Lord. What are you going through right now? I want you to stop. What are you dealing with in your life right now that is overwhelming you? That's bringing a lot of stress into your life. What is it? And then remind yourself that nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. Hmm. And Father, we get to talk to you this morning and we get to listen to you. And Lord, we are so excited to be with your people, to be with you, to be able to read your word, Lord. It's not... It's, it's not a novel, Lord. It's, it's your living word that explodes within our core when we read it and apply it to our lives. It has the power to transform our lives, to model your character. 
What a privilege it is, Lord, to be able to teach from it. And this morning, we're so grateful that your spirit is here as well to, to communicate to us and, and to encourage us and to convict us and to point us to you, Jesus. And so will you do it? Will you do that? Lord, will you do it? In Jesus' name, amen. Ernest Shackleton modeled something in front of his men that they would never forget. Jonathan modeled for Israel something that they would never forget. And when we look at the background of, of 1 Samuel 14, um, we, we go back into history and we uh, follow you know, Israel coming out of Egypt as slaves and God is moving them into, wanting to move them into the promised land and while they're getting all settled, God says, I am your king. I, God, the one true God, I am your king. And I want you to be secure in that fact. And Israel says, no, 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 we don't want you to be our king. We want an earthly king. And every country around us, we see they have kings. We want to be just like them. And friends, it's unfortunate in our culture today that so many followers of Christ, instead of saying, Lord, I want you to be my king. Through idolatry, we allow other things to come into our lives to displace him. He said, no, no, I don't want you to be king, Lord. I, I want you to be my friend. And all my friends are serving these other gods, small g. I'm good with that. I, I, I want to follow them instead of, of you. We do the same thing. You know, we, we can sit here this morning and think, man, I'm so spiritual. No. Man, we need God. We need him. In Israel, can you imagine God, the Father, saying, I'm your king. I love you. And being rejected by his own people. I don't want you to be king. We want an earthly king. And so God finally relents. Oh, he said, oh you want a king? And that's what he does in all of our lives. He'll give us what we want. People that reject him as savior, people who push him away as a God who paid for their sin debt in full, they don't want him, okay? He gives them what they want. He'll give them hell because that's what they want, okay? One day they'll stand before God. Friends, every single human that has lived or will live, their name is written in the book of life that's kept in heaven. Why? Because in 2 Peter, Peter says that the will of God, this is God's will, he doesn't want one person to go to hell. That's his will. But because of his love, he's given you the freedom to choose to respond to him or reject him. And you can see it lived out right here in Israel. He's giving them the choice. You want a king? Okay, okay, I'll give you a king. That's what you want? You don't want me? Okay, I'll give you an earthly king. He does the same thing in your life and my life. You don't want him? He'll give you what you want. And so Saul um, becomes the king, the first king of Israel, 1 Samuel 9 and 10. And in, in chapter 13, prior to our text this morning, we see that the king, Saul, uh, is drifting spiritually. He, he, when, when he's confronted with the, the idea that he would be king, he felt inferior, he didn't feel good enough, and so he heavily relied on God 
to, to make him the man that he needed to be, to be that king. But he drifted quickly out of in, by um, uh, fear, by, by uh, insecurity. When a man is insecure, boy, that's potentially dangerous. And because of his insecurity, he disobeyed God. You can read that in, in chapter 13. And you see him drifting. You see him moving away from God, disobeying God. God says, do this, and, and, and Saul disobeys God and does what he wants. And, man, are we prone to do that as well. So here we are in 13, and things are going from bad to worse in Saul's life and in the military. And, and, and so um, after years of humiliation from the Philistine army, this is over 200 years of time where with raiding parties coming into Israel and, and harassing uh, the Israelites over and over again. Um, uh, Saul's original army of 3,000 are down to 600. You know why? Because they've been intimidated. They're, they're hiding in caves. They're hiding in holes in the ground because they're so fearful of the Philistines. And all they're doing is, is mirroring, modeling What's going on in Saul's life? Instead of Saul saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. Will you come and help us? Take on these Philistines. He could have done that. Just like Jehoshaphat, you know. He could have, he could have done that. But instead, he, he looks at the circumstances. Instead of going to God, he just, he feels very fearful. There's no way we can win here. And so his men are modeling his fear. And we see not only a little more background here in 1 Samuel 13, 19, and 20, um, it gives us a picture of what's going on in Israel. There were no blacksmiths in the land of Israel in those days. The Philistines wouldn't allow them for fear. They would make swords and spears for the Hebrews. So whenever the Israelites needed to sharpen their plowshares, picks, axes, or sickles, they had to take them to a Philistine blacksmith. So what, what's going on here... We, just to bring it up to modern day, we could say, okay, our government makes a decision that we're going to go into every home and take every gun and rifle from the citizens of America. You have no right to bear arms, even though it's in the Constitution. The Philistines came into Israel and they said basically the same thing. You have no right to bear arms. In fact, uh, blacksmiths who could create weapons they were outlawed in Israel. Those businesses were shut down. And so for the Jew, the Jew who was a farmer, he would have to cross over into Philistine territory and give his business to a Philistine blacksmith. You know, my, my rake just broke, can you fix that? So they would fix the implements for farming equipment, but they would never allow weapons to be built. That's, and so the, there's only four swords and spears left in all of Israel. Saul's got one. Jonathan's got one. And the two armor bearers of, of Saul and Jonathan have one. So there, think about that. Four swords. Boy, does that make me... Let's go get them, boys. Four swords. No, 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 it's not, it, you know, for the, the Philistines had taught 10 horsemen to each of Saul's men. 10 to 1 odds. And you don't have weapons to defend yourself. It looks pretty hopeless, doesn't it? So, so we see that um, it's a critical time in the history of Israel. So on the back of your, on the back of your program, you can fill in this first uh, point. It's time to go. It's time to go. Now, that doesn't mean you can get up and leave now. It's time to go. Um, in the context of your spiritual journey. So let's look at verse 1. It's time to go. One day, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come on! You think he said it that way? 
Let's go over to where the Philistines have their outposts. But Jonathan did not tell his father what he was doing. So uh, just the last verse uh, of chapter 13, verse 23, 1 Samuel, puts it a little context in this as well. The, the pass at Michmash had meanwhile been secured by a contingent of the Philistine army. The pass at Michmash. Let's take a look at what that looks like. Uh, the pass at Michmash. This is it right here. So this is high ground. This is high ground. And the pass to get through this is being cut off by the Philistine army. And so what that does, um, if the Israelites wanted to get through that pass, they would have to, to, to get through the Philistines. And, of course, that, they wouldn't allow that to happen. Jonathan... Um, Let's, let's talk about Jonathan. Saul, because he's drifting spiritually and because he's neglected his walk with God, is looking at human, the human factor. What can I do? And when he, he lowers himself into the human factor only, it looks pretty hopeless. And so Saul and his 600 men have been paralyzed on this, on this hillside. Like there's no way we can do anything. We don't, know, we don't know what to do. Jonathan, his son, is there. He's been watching his dad. Can I tell you, gentlemen, that your sons are watching you, how you respond under stress. Jonathan's been watching his father drift spiritually. And so... He, he's, he's watching all this, and something happens to him. Something happens to him while he's hanging out with his dad and 600 other men. And the whole environment is doom and gloom. There's no way we're going to get through this. There's no way we're going to win this battle. And Jonathan says, that's enough. I'm done with this, man. If my father is not, he's the king, he should be taking the initiative on the battlefield, but he's not. God, we have no record of God speaking to Jonathan that, Jonathan, you go and I'll give you the victory. Nothing like that. But I'll tell you what happened. Jonathan had a relationship with God. And there's something about having a relationship with God you know right from wrong. You know the will of God because you know God. And so Jonathan, without God sending him a memo, there's something inside of him that says, this is not right. This is not honoring to God. I, not in my strength, but in the, my faith in Almighty God, who is, who is and should be king of Israel, I'm going to step out, man. Like Shackleton did with, for his guys, getting on that 23 life. I'm going to step out of my comfort zone and do something. And I think about my dad, whose father, my grandfather, was not a very good example. My father made a decision, it's time to go. I'm not going to follow my father's example. I'm going to step out and follow God, even though my father's not. I want to ask you this morning, who is it in your life that's, that's influencing you, that's causing you to be paralyzed spiritually, to not become all that God wants you to be? For some today, it might be your biological father. You're, 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 he's not been the greatest example, and so you've just kind of well, my dad's not doing it, so I'm not going to do it. You just kind of sign off and kind of go with the flow, you know, like everybody else. Okay, if it's not your father, who is it? Who is the person or group of people that are impacting you uh, on the hillside of passivity in your walk with Jesus Christ? Who is it? What's causing you to be passive or lukewarm or 
uh, apathetic about your walk with Jesus Christ. Put a name on it. Are you going to live in 2019 the way you lived in 2018 in your walk with Christ? We are, we are still on the front end of 2019, friends, and we have this great opportunity to make a difference. This is where I was in 2018, and by the grace of God, this is where I will go in 2019. That is where Jonathan was in this context. He was saying, I've had enough of passivity. I've had enough of excuse-making. I am not going to allow this to happen or prevent me from becoming all that God wants me to be. That was me years ago. When I allowed excuses, when I talked myself out of, when I didn't think I was good enough, or whatever the case may be, I, I just was paralyzed spiritually. I was in lockdown mode until I hit the bottom of the can. And I, I said to myself, self, I'm tired of making excuses why God can't use me. And you break out. And you tell yourself, it's time to go. It's time to go. It's time to put it in D. Get some movement going. And so, when we see A.W. Tozer, great theologian, Bible teacher, he says, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you, what do you think about when God comes to mind? You see, part of me being paralyzed was my, my when God, God must, God's angry at me. God, God's waiting to get me. He's, he, when I make a mistake, he's going to zap me. See, that was, that was my perspective of God, and it was wrong, totally wrong. Can I tell you something? By reading your Bible, you will get a true image and perspective of who God is. Yesterday, at No Regrets, I was sitting in a, in a session with, with Gordon McDonald. Gordon's 80 years old. Another one of the conference dudes was Stuart Briscoe. He's 88 years old. And so initially I'm thinking, man, they got a bunch of old dudes here, man. Well, when I listen to them talk, I'm realizing they're here on purpose. Because these are men that are not quitting. They're not coasting like Saul was. They're finishing strong which encouraged me. 80 years old, 88, and they're strong for God. So Gordon's giving a, he's 80, and he's putting his life in reverse of how his parents fought when he was growing up. They fought. They, they had a terrible marriage. And so, so when he was a freshman in high school, they shipped him off from the East Coast out to the West Coast to go to school, high school, a private school. And he talked about as a little boy to an adult how God brought Christian men and women into his life at strategic times and places to point him to Jesus. You know? and, and he's talking about, you know, the big picture is how much God loves him. And, and I, while he's talking, and I'm listening, my mind goes to my children. And I had an overwhelming sense come over me how much I loved them, even though they weren't with me. They were miles away. It's like a wave of love swept over me for my love for my children. And then the thought occurred to me, that's my father God. When he thinks about you, he has an overwhelming sense of how much he loves you. Oh, he loves you. 
And friends, when we get that settled in our heart, how much he loves you, it will radically change how you live your life for him. It will. I had a conversation with one of the dudes from, from Life Church. We were, on a, we were on a break and we were just talking about, man, the older we get, the more grateful we become on God's forgiveness for us. Because we realize even one sin would separate us from him. And we realize the overwhelming amount of grace that he pours into us. Over and over, we don't deserve it, but he over and over again. Which makes me so, oh God, you're so good. You're so forgiven. I don't deserve it. That radically transforms your relationship as well. You're so grateful for what he's done. You don't take it for granted. And so, it's time to go. You see, the Philistines, they were bragging about how mighty their God was, Dagon. Oh yeah, Dagon, he's much better than Almighty God. And soon the Israelites started believing that Dagon was stronger than their God. You see, that, that warped their, their sense of the awesomeness of their God. Just a footnote, you know Dagon, you know how they worshipped him? They would take children, put them on an altar and burn them to Dagon. God the Father took his only son and put him on the altar of a cross for you and for me once and for all to pay for your sin and my sin. Isn't that amazing? Huh? Lord, we are so grateful. We're so grateful. And so in 1 Samuel 13, 5 through 7, it says, The Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of the sand on the seashore. They camped at Michmash, east of beth The men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in, and, they be and because they were so hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves. These are military men. Think about it. They're, they're hiding in caves, thickets, rocks, holes, and cisterns. And some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Saul's character is decaying right in front of Jonathan, his son. And Jonathan was saying, I'm not going to settle for, for compromise. There's, there's four words here, friends, and I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to underline them. That would be a tipping point in your life and my life. Come on. Let's go. Come on. Let's go. No more camping on the hillside in fear, inferiority, in failure. No, 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 no. No. Come on. Come on. Come on. Let's go. Let's, let's take that next step in our spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ in 2019. Let's do it. As a people of God, let's, let's say I'm tired of living a life of, of, of being addicted to, and you can fill in the blank. Uh, I, that addiction is life-controlling, and my life, every time it pulls the chain, I have to obey it. You're going to keep living? You're going to live the end of your life and you're going to look back and say, man, I have so many regrets. God does not want you at the end of your life to say, I have regrets. He wants you to go full bore and say, I have lived life to the full for the honor of Almighty God. And so this morning, when we look at... Jonathan, 
Let's take his life example and say, Lord, this morning I have been encouraged to get out of my rut. I, am, I have been encouraged to get out of my hole in the ground that I've placed myself in because of passivity in my walk with you. Lord, I am going to take Jonathan's example and I'm going to step it up in 2019. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. So this morning we have a choice, don't we? We, we have Saul here. Saul, a man who is a human king. Who by all resources available to him for God to pour himself into this man, to lead this nation in a relationship with him, but he chooses not to. And he uses circumstances and he uses his own insecurity to, to question God and question, does God have a plan for my life? And so he's paralyzed here. Or you could cross over to where Jonathan is and say, Jonathan, Jonathan has seen enough. Have you seen enough? And so, Lord, I endeavor to get into your word, to find out who you are, to get to know your character the way it will give me a more accurate picture of you. Yeah. And maybe there's people in your life that have been influencing you to be neutralized spiritually. You know, Saul impacted 600 men into neutrality and compromise. Don't you think it's time to step out and say, it's, it's time to go. I'm going with God. And Father, I pray this morning that as we have been reading your word, Lord, and looking at the example of Saul and Jonathan, we get to pick what kind of legacy we want to leave behind. Do we want to have a Saul legacy where we're so insecure that we, man, we live a life of fear, uh, we live in intimidation, uh, we live in failure, we live a life full of addictions, or we can cross over and be like Jonathan and say, it's time to go. It's time to go over. I pray, Lord, as we have sat in your presence, that your Holy Spirit has been speaking to us in a personal way. What, what are those things that are keeping me from What's keeping you from, come on, let's go. What's, what's keeping you paralyzed in your walk with Christ? And then ask the Lord to help you take that away, to set you free, to break the chains that have held you for so long.